1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Trashy Divorces.
0: Holy cats. Thanks, everybody, for joining us this week. It is the end of season 11. I'm Alicia.
1: My name is Stacy, and oh, by golly, and these the waning moments of our recording for this season that we have all lived through, whew. We have been rocking the boat for almost
0: three <laughs> years now. Like, what a magnificent and lovely cruise. Thank big, you. Yeah, to big thanks.
1: everyone who has ever listened and especially subscribed and... Sent us funny emails about... Told a friend. Gave us a review. Like, y'all are amazing. Laughing while they're on their bike rides and... We sound kind of ominous. We're not ending the podcast. We're not at all. We're not at all. We're taking a week off and then we're back (laughs) with
0: all new (laughs) Trashy Divorces. Season 12 kicks off on October the 6th with Trashy Breakups and your regular Trashy Divorces programming returns Sunday, October 10th. With a brand new Trashy Divorces. I'm excited about this one. Me too. Oh, it's a mystery. <laughs> All right, let's set sail and finish out this season. Alicia, who do you have for the people today? Goodness. I, The lovely and brilliant and not terribly lucky in love, <laughs> Gina Davis. Three or four time marriage or divorcer? Who can say really? Who can say really? There are questions, but sure. what a lady. Sure. She might not be terribly lucky in love, but her contributions are pretty incredible. Mm-hmm. It's an awful nice balance to Whew. your story this week, Stacy, which was terrible and maybe needs a little content warning here.
1: Maybe so, friends. I have Mel Gibson, Hollywood star. You probably heard of the guy. Please note that in this story, there is some like explicit anti-Semitism, racism, violence against women. Just a, it's a grab bag, of awful, and if you're not in the mood to listen to that, you know, use your judgment. That said, it's uh, whoo,
0: it's trashy. I got a big magic mirror hmm. to end out season eleven. First, we have huge love and thanks and praise to give to all of our newest Team Trash Candy supporters over at Patreon.com/slash/trashydivorces.
1: We do indeed. Thank you so much for joining us, April Marie L, Mary Elise H. M-N-N, Sherry W, Jane B, Carol B, Elena P, Barry G, Katie J, N-I-E-C,
0: holy cats. Thank y'all so, so much for joining us over there. We have a new super supporter. We do. To shout out, Marty N.
1: Also, we have a new... Trash Associate Producer. Holy cats, Nancy B. So thank you to everyone who is part of the community At Patreon.com slash divorces. It is a joy of our lives. And thanks for coming to listen to the season finale of
0: season 11. Y'all, every one of your ears, every one of your faces in the Magic Mirror too. This week in the Magic Mirror. I have two extra Magic Mirror shout outs. Go forth. The other special faces I see. Little Lulu Bird, our mutual friend, has relayed some really exciting special bundle of joy news. And maybe just send us a picture of your new precious sweet baby, and we are in love, and Mm -hmm. send you all the very trashy good little Lulu Mm -hmm. bird you rock. And? The sprinkles on the cupcake of the weekend. You and I last night, Mm -hmm. in a very COVID-safe environment, went to see live music for the first time in-
1: Since 2019. Two years. Mm
0: -hmm. First shout out in the magic mirror, counting crows. Mm -hmm. Guys- Hell of a show. Amazing live performance.
1: There's a court order that requires Alicia to attend all Atlanta performances by the band.
0: <laughs> I have seen every Atlanta live performance by the band, and that was an incredible live show. It was. Attached to that. The family that sat behind us. The Bovee family. Mom, dad, their four kids. Four kids attending their first Counting Crows show ever. I am that lady at the show. Who- you, You are that lady. In between opening bands, you know, makes friends with the people around me. And I wanted to give a big shout out to the Bovee family for reminding me everything that is beautiful about seeing live music with a crowd of people who all really love one thing. It made me really grateful. Bovee family, y'all made my night.
1: Alicia, you know what they say. If that boat is rocking.
0: Oh, we'd better go go go.
1: Okay, Alicia, you've got you've got someone I genuinely love this week, yeah? She's a fantastic character. Yeah. She's interesting. Uh-huh. We have
0: four possibly marriages, four possibly divorces. Hmm. <laughs> This has been requested by one of our trash associate producers. Mm-hmm. Welcome to the trashy divorce's tale of Gina Davis. Virginia Elizabeth Davis mm-hmm. was born on January twenty first, nineteen fifty six, in Wareham, Massachusetts.
1: Wareham, Wareham, Wareham. W a r e h a m. It's okay. I didn't need you to spell it.
0: Oh no! I'm about to do some oh. Swedish pronunciation, so it's going to get Fantastic. worse. Mm-hmm.
1: Buckle up, everybody. <laughs>
0: January 21st is Smack Dab in the middle of the cusp of mystery. One son in Capricorn, the other one in Aquarius. Lucille and William are her parents. Lucille is a teacher's assistant. Her dad is a civil engineer. Oh, but also doubles as a deacon at their church. Gina has, well, Virginia at this point. She's not Gina yet. She has one older sibling, a brother named Dan. She's a musical child, plays the piano, flute, organ. She's the organist for her church when she's a teenager. In high school, she's going to
1: go to Sweden as an exchange student. I was waiting for the... When, 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 do, when do we get to the Swedish pronunciations thing? So, <laughs> at this point, she will
0: become fluent in Swedish. I am not. Interestingly, <laughs> this time in Sweden is when she will take on the name of Gina. There's a children's character on a Swedish television show that is called Druntum Ak Gina, or Gina the Crocodile, (laughs) that will inspire the name change. Okay. Gina graduates from Wareham High School and goes on to New England College in Henneker, New Hampshire, but will transfer to Boston University, where Gina will earn a bachelor's degree in fine arts in 1979. Easy to see how, she has an IQ of 140, Hmm. and she is a member of Mensa. Okay. Smart lady. Yeah. Kind of dumb in love. Perhaps. I don't know. You can't have it all. Lucky for us. (laughs) Gina comes to New York, fresh out of Boston University. She is living in a hostel that's run by nuns in Manhattan. Okay. She's working as a sales clerk at Ann Taylor. Okay. In walks Richard Amolo. He's managing a restaurant right down the street from Ann Taylor. And he's walking by and notices this beautiful girl taking a break in the basement from her sales clerk job at Ann Taylor. He goes right on up to her, asks her to dinner. She says yes. They go to dinner. They will end up at his apartment for a cold, stoly vodka nightcap. And well, friends, the heart wants what the heart wants. The love affair is on. Richard says it was instant attraction. We both realized it right away. Gina moved in with me a month later and brought her brass bed. (laughs) They go to films and movies. And by the summer of 1980, Richard will propose to Gina. Ah, to be young and in love. With his grandmother's heirloom ring. And by 1981, he's using his connections at the Zoli Modeling Agency to take some photos of his... Beautiful. I mean, she's six feet
1: tall. Yeah, I was going to say. She's gorgeous. Like, of course she's going to model. The idea of her as a as a retail sales per like, she's got to be intimidating. I wonder if she was a successful retail sales associate. Well, it doesn't matter. Associate Because soon enough, she's modeling. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely.
0: And then a little movie called Tootsie comes along. Hmm. So Richard will say, Gina interviewed for Tootsie, and then she had to go to Paris for modeling work. But she was so impressive, they called her back for a second interview after she returned home. This time, Hoffman himself interviewed her. Hmm. Gina's breaking through. Richard about the marriage. I always find the first one fascinating. Richard said, but it was right about then that we started having problems in our marriage. Gina and I were seriously thinking about having children, but Tootsie kind of put that on the back burner. To my mind, her success was a case of too much too soon. I had helped her in the beginning with her career, and then we would read tons of books and magazines together, looking for something that could be a future screenplay for her. But after Tootsie, Gina's agent sent her to Hollywood. She got a co-starring role in the TV sitcom Buffalo Bill, and I moved out to L.A. to be with her. Ah, this is where it all goes wrong. We've seen it before, right? Yeah, we have. I loved her, but I hated Los Angeles, and I wanted to go home to New York. Eventually, Gina said, I want to stay out here without you. Oof. I mean, Richard says I was a little shocked, <laughs> but I could see it coming. We separated. I left Los Angeles in March of 1983. I was heartbroken for about a year and then it was over. Gina filed for a divorce. Richard now owns his own restaurant. He's completely gracious. Sure. I found this particular article. After her fourth question mark marriage, (laughs) Richard is like a, sounds like a nice guy. He's like, if anyone deserves to find happiness, it's Gina. She's a wonderful, talented gal who hasn't had much luck with her marriages. But hopefully the fourth time will be the charm. I will let you make your estimation of that when we get there. Okay. Richard will add, we may have lost touch, but I still think about Gina often. We were only married for three years, but they were filled with good times.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, what an expansive phase of her life in particular, 100%. but of, of their mm-hmm. lives
0: at the early 20s. But we've period. seen couples break up.
1: Absolutely. I don't I don't like L.A. I want to live in New York. I don't like New York. I want to live in L.A. Like it's- Well, and, and sudden success. It just changes. It just changes everything. So continuing on. Mm-hmm. So throughout the early 80s. Gina is playing
0: on a lot of small roles in TV shows. Knight Rider, Fantasy Island, Riptide, Family Ties, Remington Steele. She gets Tootsie. In 1984, though, after Tootsie, she's cast in this TV show Buffalo Bill about a talk show host played by Dabney Coleman. Canceled, though, after two seasons. She then becomes the lead character in a TV sitcom called Sarah with Alfrey Woodard, Bill Maher, and Bronson Pinchot in 1985. I don't know if mm. you remember this. I
1: do not, actually, but. The show is about young lawyers,
0: promising cast, only lasts though one season. Hmm. But 1985's busy year, successful year for Gina Davis. She has a role in that year's hit Fletch with Chevy Chase. Gina's also cast in the comedy horror film Transylvania 65,000. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. While her role as a nymphomaniac vampire itself was not life changing for Gina Davis, meeting one of her fellow cast members will be. As we progress along to marriage number two, Transylvania 65000 had an impressive cast of 80 stars Carol Kane, Ed Bagley Jr., Norman Fell, and Jeff Goldblum.
1: Oh, good. Oh, good. I was like, I'm pretty sure Jeff Goldblum was one of her husbands. Oh, yeah. Excellent.
0: He's already a Hollywood mainstay. He's been in Invasion of the Body Snatchers and The Big Chill. He's had some parts in TV shows as well. Laverne and Shirley, Columbo, Starsky, and Hutch. Old Jeff is also fresh off his first divorce from his first wife, Patricia Gall. He marries her in 1980. But alas, on the set, nymphomaniac vampires, I mean, come on. It's like a hotbed of chemistry. Gina and Jeff, yeah, instant attraction. (laughs) GQ magazine will write an article about the couple in June of 1989, calling them Hollywood's most adorable couple. In the article, Jeff will say he felt nervous during their first encounter because he really wanted Gina to like him. Gina made love falling in love so easy. Jeff will go on and say about Gina that she is purely loving, beguiling, and irresistible. In 1986, the couple will star together in the critically acclaimed The Fly. They get married. Las Vegas wedding. If you got your bingo cards out. In 1987, and things seem perfect. They did. I recall this. For a little while. Until they are not. (laughs) In 1988, let's do a little deo. Gina will star in one of her most recognizable roles in Beetlejuice. The couple will share the big screen again in 1988 in the science fiction musical comedy Earth Girls Are Easy. Yep. I really, you're just smiling. Oh, I'm, I'm you're so delighted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, but it's I've another. Seen, I've seen all of you. <laughs> 1988 movie. The Accidental Tourist, that will earn Gina Davis an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress. This film also starring William Hurt and Kathleen Turner. I mean, critical success, commercial success, wins the Oscar for Best Picture in 1988. Jeff is also working at this time, but his roles are not getting Oscars. A little smaller roles. By 1990, three years later, Gina files for divorce, citing... Hmm our eternal favorite. Irreconcilable differences. You got it. Mm -hmm. In a People magazine interview in 1991, Gina Davis says she and Goldblum certainly had high hopes and every good intention regarding their marriage. She will add it is upsetting that it could not work out between them. So her romantic life kind of in a slump, but her professional life all time high. 1991, little film called Thelma and Louise with Susan Sarandon. Rings a bell. This film was nominated for six Academy Awards, including Best Actress nominations for both Davis and Sarandon. They both will lose to her. Jodie Foster wins that year for Silence of the Lambs.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: Wow. What a simpler time. (laughs) Thelma and Louise, though, does take home the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay. Okay. Gosh, this really is just a walk down memory lane. Yeah. Gina professionally is going to follow up that success in Thelma and Louise with her role as Dottie in the 1992 film, A League of Their Own, Mm. directed by previous TD
1: alum, Kenny Marshall. We're just going to need to have. Can can we set up a screening with (laughs) listeners? Is there a way to do that? (laughs) That's such a touchstone film. Okay.
0: Gina Davis with Tom Hanks and Rosie O'Donnell mm-hmm. and Madonna and mm-hmm. Laurie Petty. There's no crying in baseball. That, mm-hmm. Penny Marshall initially wanted Demi Moore, another previous TD alum, for the role of Dottie, but Demi is pregnant at uh, the time. Mm-hmm. Penny Marshall is also going to consider strongly Deborah Winger. Interesting. Before she lands on Gina Davis. Okay. <laughs> Professionally, all things good. Probably time to resurrect some love. We got some instant attraction to have. Time to rock the boat again, so to speak. In 1993, Gina Davis will meet and swiftly marry director and producer Brittany Harlan. Harlan had directed, in 1990, The Misadventures of Ford Fairlane with Andrew Dice Clay. Mm -hmm. Harlan directed Davis in two movies in her career, Cutthroat Island. In 1995, and The Long Kiss Goodnight in 1996.
1: Yeah, I think that second one was supposed to turn her into a female action star and somehow didn't.
0: Well, it might have something to do with Cutthroat Island. Mm. Let me tell you, give mm. you a little. It's a pirate adventure film. Originally meant What's Not to Love? I mean, that's what I'm saying. Uh, Michael Douglas was supposed to be Gina Davis's original co star in Cutthroat Island. Michael Douglas decides that he is going to quit the film. And now, now Rennie Harlan needs to find a new actor. This is only the first of the many problems that the film would have. Mm -hmm. Rennie becomes so involved in finding a new male lead that the set and the script are done really without his input or oversight. So it's a bit of a mess, is what you're saying. 100%. So we have expensive rebuilding and rewriting, extended delays in shooting. There are a lot of arguments on the set. Now, Michael Douglas, it turns out, is not easy to replace. Let me give you a list of some of the folks who will all turn down the role because they see Cutthroat Island is probably going to be a disaster. (laughs) Tom Cruise, Kiana Reeves, Russell Crowe, Liam Neeson, Jeff Bridges... Ralph Fiennes, Charlie Sheen, Michael Keaton, Tim Robbins, Daniel Day-Lewis, and Gabriel Burton. Wow. I know. The role will go... <laughs> I was going to say who's left. <laughs> Mackie keep... Modine. Oh, okay. Who will take the role because he is a fencer. And he likes, oh, oh I, I can fence in we'll, this little we'll swashbuckling mm-hmm. going on. Okay. Cutthroat Island will turn out to be one of the biggest box office bombs in movie history. It holds the dubious distinction of the Guinness World Record for biggest box office loss of all time. Wow. Mm-hmm. It's colossal <laughs> failure. I just want you to set this in motion.
1: I don't think I ever saw it, but I guess that I guess I join hey, the majority is, in that This is 1995.
0: Okay. okay? That this movie comes out. It fails so terribly. I don't want to pile on, but it's worth noting <laughs> that from 1995 it is not until 2003 when Pirates of the Caribbean with Johnny Depp is approved. It takes another decade to yeah. get another pirate
1: right. movie approved in Hollywood. Yeah, pirate movies were radioactive for a minute after that.
0: Well, the movie loses $147 million. <gasps> Just a little. Yeah. Just a few bucks. Uh, I'm sorry, that's adjusted for the oh, cost okay. of inflation. Sure. But... It does so bad that Carol Co. Pictures has to file bankruptcy a month after the film's release. Oh, wow. So the long kiss goodnight comes next. It is not a failure on the same kind of level as Cutthroat Island. I think that is a truly swashbuckling example. Mm -hmm. But it will still lose money at the box office. Mixed reviews. None of this helps the marriage between Gina and
1: Rennie Harlan, the couple divorces in 1998. You you know that saying about how (laughs) you should leave things better than you found them? It sounds like he did not leave her career better than he found it. Whatever good intentions they may have had, that's really unfortunate. Good
0: podcast about bad relationships. (laughs) Here's the questionable one. I need you to really... Be prepared for this, because this is where things get a little confusing. Okay. So far, Gina is three up, mm-hmm. three down. Number four, Gina Davis says she actually never married, so they don't technically need to get divorced. Is Do they agree on that point, or is there a disagreement on that point? Let's uh, back up okay. the boat a little. Uh, Reza Jahari is an Iranian-American neurosurgeon and professor of surgery at UCLA. Jahari is also the co director of the UCLA face transplant program. Didn't know there was such I a was thing. I was going to
1: say, holy crap. Okay. So this guy is brilliant and talented. Oh okay. my God.
0: He's the assistant chief of plastic surgery at the All of You UCLA Medical Center as well. No, he knows his stuff. He can replace your face if face off need be. Mm-hmm. In a 2006 interview to Good Housekeeping, Gina Davis said about getting to know the 15-year-younger Jahari. A relationship with him seemed a little far-fetched. I remember thinking, this guy is cute and ridiculously young. At first, to be honest, I was just approaching it like something that would be fun. I wasn't thinking too far ahead of the game. The amazing thing is, when we started to spend more and more time together, there wasn't anything about her age difference that stuck out. It wasn't like I was sitting there saying, what do you mean you don't know who the Beatles are? It doesn't feel like we're from different generations, and now we barely notice it all. This is 1998 when the two meet, introduced by mutual friends. He is 27, she is 42. September 1st, 2001, the couple allegedly marries In the tiny town of Wayne Scott in the Hamptons. They start a family soon afterward. They have a daughter born in 2002 and fraternal twin sons join the family in 2004.
1: It's all going great, right? Identical twins would be better for the face transplant surgeon, but whatever. Things are going
0: smoothly for the happy family. Gina Davis is starring in the Stuart Little movies. She'll make her own short-lived TV series called The Gina Davis Show. Oh, she plays the president of the United States in television's Commander-in-Chief for 18 episodes. In between 2004 and 2008, she's also popping in a lot of episodes of Grey's
1: Anatomy. I may have missed that period of Grey's Anatomy. Interesting. The couple are happy. Sure. Busy raising their family. But... Swapping faces. In
0: 2018... Jahari files for divorce mm. under the name of Rob Doe versus Veronica Doe. Okay. He cites irreconcilable, irreconcilable. differences, our mm-hmm. favorite, as the reason, and stated the separation date was November 15th, 2017. He also requests that Gina Davis be denied any request for spousal support.
1: Hmm. So this is about, what, 14 years? 16 years. They've been married a long time. Or allegedly. (laughs) Allegedly. Now, Gina Davis,
0: (laughs) getting the suit filed on her, she replies and asks the judge very nicely just to dismiss Jahari's divorce filing because the two were never legally married. She will say that they, quote, knowingly and voluntarily chose to have a marriage-like ceremony, fully aware that it was not legally binding unquote Okay why is this a little confusing
1: I uh, my face is cuz there's
0: a video of the 2001 ceremony showing her vowing to love him as her husband until death there is a hearing in Los Angeles superior but, court but like they never got a license or well hold on okay. to determine the legality the validity the legality of the marriage mm. and Gina Davis defends her position that the couple was not legally married The two of them, she says, never obtained a marriage license. Jahari's father performed the ceremony and he was not qualified under New York law to perform marriages. Therefore, the video is only showing a scene. I'm an actress. It's not legal. We never got a license. She'll go on saying that both she and Jahari will check single on their tax returns. They never own property as a couple. Hmm. They never have a joint checking or savings account. They do not have a joint retirement account. Jahari does not receive health insurance through her SAG after a membership because he doesn't qualify as a family member. So that's her side. That actually sounds pretty solid as evidence goes. So Jahari is asked about these claims and he says... This is bizarre. He files his court paperwork stating, Did she lie to everyone when she told them we were married? I certainly intended to marry. I believed I was marrying Gina. In our early history together, in Gina's own statements and interviews, she gave to the press supports that this was her intention as well. Any suggestion that we had no intention of legally getting married is absolutely untrue. He will go on. To explain that they didn't get a marriage license because Gina didn't want to tip off the media to find out about their wedding day. And she figured as soon as that paper was filed, the press would be all over it. As well as submitting (laughs) photographic proof of the wedding, the doctor explained that the ceremony was officiated by both a priest and his own father, So it could also be validated under Islamic laws and traditions for his family, who immigrated from Iran. And his dad also filed documents outlining his involvement in the potentially legal, maybe not legal ceremony. Now, to their credit, (laughs) the two have continued to co-parent through this legal battle. Everything was delayed because of COVID.
1: Mm Mm-hmm.
0: But as of early this year, 2021, there are reports saying the case should be concluded soon. It does remain unclear what the marriage and or divorce status of this couple is. Suffice to say, whatever it is, the two of these lovebirds not together anymore.
1: That's so strange. Isn't that odd? Did she have some underhanded... Uh, so, but he's a highfalutin doctor. I'm sure he's... She put her house in the Pacific Palisades
0: up for sale last year, August of last year. I'm, I'm not going to leave you on a down note, though. That's, okay. That's okay. three to four up, three to four down. Mm-hmm. But I do want to talk about some of Gina Davis's other talents because she really is sort of a fascinating lady. In addition to being unlucky at love, bless her heart, mm-hmm. she's an accomplished archer. She becomes intrigued in archery, watching the 1996 Olympics in Atlanta. Hmm. She's so inspired. She'll tell People Magazine they had a lot of coverage of archery because America's winning all these gold medals. And I was like, wow, it's very dramatic and beautiful. And I just thought casually, I wonder if I'd be good at that. Back in high school, she was in track and field, but she hasn't really done sports in her adult life. And she realized that she always liked the movie roles that she had best that require her to engage in physical challenges. So, and from the same people magazine, I'd learned sports from a number of movies. I learned how to play basketball. Then I had to learn fencing and Taekwondo and horseback riding and ice skating and all kinds of stuff. And I never thought of myself as athletic, but I was actually really good at everything. So I thought, I want to take up a sport in the real life way and not the movie version because they can fake anything like my character in a league of their own only hit home runs. So I would do a nice swing, but the props guys had a giant slingshot to send the ball (laughs) over the fence with. So I thought I want to see if I can really learn something real. So in 1997, Gina Davis full on commits herself to archery. So she finds a coach. She admits she becomes obsessed with the sport. She says, yeah, I took it up at 41, and it became my life for a couple of years. Hmm. She's so passionate. She practices five hours a day, six days a week. Did you not know this? No. It's incredible. She begins winning national and international tournaments. Wow. I had no Uh idea. So after two years of total dedication to my new passion of archery, she will compete with 300 other women For a spot on the 2000 U.S. Olympic archery team. Mm -hmm. She falls just short of qualifying. She comes in 24th out of 300.
1: Wow. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, that's incredible.
0: Like, she's one of the most accomplished and elite female archers in the country. And even though her, her Olympic dreams don't pan out, she's super proud of herself. She thinks she portrayed a really positive image for girls everywhere. Being strong and accomplished. Kate. This is the cool thing. Gina is so passionate about gender equality in the media and movies. She is going to create something called the Gina Davis Institute on gender in media. And I think this archery thing and her institute sort of go hand in hand. She believes wholeheartedly that images and coverage of her competing in archery contributed to more females participating in the sport. In 2012, her archery coach called to tell her he had noticed a surprising increase in the number of young women taking up the sport. She'll tell people again, girls' archery was always way at the bottom. And suddenly the line shot straight up and became the most popularized category of men, women, boys, and girls. And that was the year the Hunger Games and Brave came out. Girls left the theater and bought a bow. It was absolutely instant. But that's the kind of impact that images can have. This is fascinating. Mm -hmm. So here's a little sprinkle on the cupcake of Gina Davis. So she's an activist and an advocate of gender equality. In 2004, she will found the Gina Davis Institute on Gender in Media. The goal of the organization is to improve the gender imbalance in media and challenge demeaning stereotypes. They do groundbreaking research. And they are playing a vital role in improving the on screen visibility of women. In 2014, the Gina Davis Institute on Gender and Media partners with the United Nations Women Agency, as well as the Rockefeller Foundation, to produce the first international study of gender images in movies. Gina Davis is also named the United Nations Special Envoy for Women and Girls in Information and Communications Technology in 2012. In 2019, Gina will eloquently explain her position and her goals for the Institute. This is just fascinating. For nearly two decades now, my focus has been on gender inequality in Hollywood and the lack of female representation on screen and behind the screen and how that impacts particularly young kids. The research by Gina Davis Institute shows that gender parity still does not exist on screen. One third of all speaking characters in film are female, and few women on screen hold positions of power. We're showing boys and girls that boys are far more important than girls by showing more male characters who do more things and more important things. And on screen, girls are judged for their looks. When girls consume a lot of television, the more they watch, the fewer options they think they have in life. And the more television a boy watches, the more sexist his views become. If we could raise our kids free of unconscious gender bias, it would change the world. We also looked at the 10 biggest markets around the world to find out what are they doing compared to Hollywood. And the interesting thing we found is that so many countries are doing so much better than the United States of America. In China, 50% of the characters are female. Hmm. Why can't we do that? Almost 80% of the media consumed worldwide is made here in the USA. So we're responsible for exporting a very negative image of women all around the world. I have realized that data is the key for making people aware of the problem because so much of it is unconscious bias. I don't think there's a magic bullet to solving the issue, but it starts with knowing what the problem is and stepping up to say, I'm going to change this. I'm going to do better. And we must all contribute to this change because we were all raised with unconscious gender bias, even women. When I give talks, I often say, go back to your life and your world, look around you and count how many women there are and how many women are in positions of authority. It starts from
1: there. Gina Davis. No, that's a great quote. And I'm almost sorry for who I'm going to follow it with. Same. (laughs) Episode really is a fine balance. There's a, yeah, that's, there's so much nuance there. And, Wow, our next story has just none,
0: (laughs) no nuance. Gina Davis, hell of a lady. I would deliver 140 trash cans for her, one for every IQ point. Mm,
1: mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: However, they're probably all in a field. You got to take your bow and arrow and find them.
1: To I don't know. I
0: love Gina Davis. I do too.
1: She's fantastic. I actually miss Gina Davis. She really like in that period of the late 80s and early 90s. She was. Everywhere, She's a fine
0: actress. And doing important things Mm -hmm. when it comes to giving us an insight into understanding the lack of gender parity. And Mm -hmm. for that, I approve. Same. Gender parity not happening when we
1: come back. It's the Fragile Masculinity Show. (laughs) See you on the flip.
0: There's never a wrong time to take a look at the things that are keeping you from living your best life. And if now is your moment, we recommend BetterHelp.
1: BetterHelp is confidential, convenient, and safe professional counseling with your own licensed therapist. BetterHelp's quick questionnaire matches you with a counselor in under 24 hours, and you can message your counselor at any time, even between scheduled phone or video sessions. And if you're not clicking, that's fine. It is free to change counselors.
0: BetterHelp is available worldwide. They offer specialized expertise that may not be available locally where you live. It's more affordable than traditional counseling. Financial aid is available as well. It has just never been easier to find a
1: licensed professional counselor. In fact, there are so many people using BetterHelp that they are recruiting counselors in all 50 states. We want you to start living your happiest life today. As a
0: Trashy Divorces listener, you get 10% off your first month by visiting BetterHelp.com slash trashy.
1: Join more than one million people who are taking charge of their mental health. Visit BetterHelp, that's better H-E-L-P dot com slash trashy.
0: Dear listeners, we interrupt your regularly scheduled ad time with a public service announcement from our friends at the Oak Tree Group.
1: September is National Preparedness Month. As explained on ready.gov, National Preparedness Month is an observance each September to raise awareness about the importance of preparing for disasters and emergencies that could happen at any time. The 2021 theme is Prepare to Protect. Preparing for disasters is protecting everyone you love.
0: It was started in
1: 2004
0: by the Federal Emergency Management Agency to encourage Americans to take steps to prepare for emergencies in their homes, businesses, schools, and communities.
1: The ladies at the Oak Tree Group want to help you get financially prepared. Things happen and everyone should have an emergency fund. It is the foundation for any financial plan. If you would like some help getting your financial preparedness plan together, call the women of the Oak Tree Group at 770 319 1700 or visit their website at www.theoaktreegroup.net. Mention this announcement for your free one-hour
0: financial preparedness conversation with The Oak Tree Group. The contact details can be found on www.theoaktreegroup.net. And for those
1: of you who celebrate,
0: happy Cat Month.
1: Hey, Trash Pandas, when you need a brain break from your day, let me recommend the game June's Journey for Android and iPhone. It's a hidden object mystery game where you are solving a murder, uncovering family secrets, and, I don't know, exposing official corruption? All in an extremely stylish 1920s setting. Every scene takes you deeper into the mystery and introduces you to an expansive cast of characters as June Parker explores the questions surrounding her sister's apparent murder-suicide at the family's beachfront estate. Add your own elements to the island from lush gardens to gorgeous new buildings. This story has so many twists and turns. Right now, we are on a global journey attempting to rescue June's niece, Virginia. It's a great combo of gameplay. It's a memory puzzle, a design project, an intriguing storyline with genuinely fabulous art. When you want to let your mind wander, relax into this glorious 1920s murder mystery and get lost in the fun. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Sibling fights are unavoidable, but what if every fight you had was under a microscope on a global scale? That's the reality for brothers Prince William and Prince Harry. They were each other's closest friends and allies since the death of their mother, but that all began to crack as they married and took wildly different approaches to their royal duties. Wondery's podcast,
0: Disantel, is hosted by comedians. You've heard of Turn On, Tune In, and Drop Out. Probably not like this. Enter Dipsy, an audio app full of short, sexy stories where you can get lost in a world where your pleasure gets top billing. So much of what passes for erotica in the world are products for women's bodies. Dipsy knows that a woman's arousal starts in our brains.
1: Dipsy is a beautifully designed app where you'll find hundreds of well-crafted erotic stories for every taste, including queer and non-binary-focused tales. Dipsy's stories are fully soundscaped and immersive, so you feel like you're right there in the thick of things, which is kind of the dream, right? Since you're already a podcast listener, there's
0: no learning curve. Just download the app, create your account, and explore everything from sensual bedtime stories to wellness sessions to soundscapes that can help you relax and drift off to sleep. Dipsy will ask what type of stories you're looking for, how steamy you want them to be, and let you choose some scenario prompts. And the rest is between you and your headphones.
1: Whether you're single or have been together for years, Dipsy is the perfect way to add some spice to your life and maybe help you find some new grooves, too. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an
0: extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash trashy.
1: That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to Dipsy, D-I-P-S-E-A, dipsystories.com slash trashy, dipsystories.com slash trashy.
0: So we're moving to the trashier portion of our program this week.
1: We are. We are indeed. Alicia, do you remember where you were when you heard about the incident that derailed Mel Gibson's career and arguably his life for nearly a decade? Which one? (laughs) Neither do I. But I do recall being genuinely shocked by accounts of his 2006 DUI arrest in which he suddenly launched into an anti-Semitic tirade at the arresting officer before attempting to flee and eventually being arrested. How'd that go? He had an open bottle of tequila in the car with him and was reportedly extremely drunk, none of which answered any of the obvious questions arising from this why on earth did he default to that type of racist invective? Who does that and perhaps most importantly, what kind of broken brain is pulsing behind one of the most famous faces in the world?
0: Let's investigate. Let's
1: investigate. <laughs> this would not be Mel's last brush with the law or with career damaging notoriety, though the arrest does seem to have sealed the fate of his then more than 25 year long marriage. He and wife Robin would not officially divorce for a few more years, but that 06 arrest is. Kind of a line of demarcation, certainly in the public life of Mel Gibson, the place where you can point and say, "Over here, that is Mel Gibson before," and over here,
0: Mel that is Gibson.
1: Mel Gibson after. after. Yeah. So let's meet Mel because it turns out I was this week years old when I learned that he is not an Australian actor. Oh, really? Mel Gibson was born in Peekskill, New York, no. on January third, nineteen fifty-six.
0: Oh, Capricorn man. Who's oh, that? An- mm-hmm. All right.
1: He's the sixth of eleven children. Wow. Uh-huh. Born to Hutton Gibson and uh the Irish born Anne Patricia Gibson. The eleven children factoid probably gives away that this is a Catholic family, but let it be known that they were not merely Catholic. What kind of other Catholic can you be? <sighs> Hutton Gibson was a way off the deep end Catholic traditionalist who rejected the post-Vatican II church that came into being in the sixties and spent the rest of his life publishing newsletters and books with titles like The War is Now and The Enemy is Here. He encouraged U.S. states to secede, something that historically has gone really well. You're joking. I'm not, and he was basically a pre-internet peddler of all kinds of half-baked and racially provocative conspiracy theories, although I'm pretty sure he only passed away last year, so... (sighs) Fully on into the internet age too. Wait a minute. Was Vatican II that
0: controversial? We just want to say mass
1: in English, not Latin. Yeah, there's a strain within Catholicism that believes that the papacy has been illegitimate since 1958. Oh. Mel Gibson's father is part of, or was part of that. Wow. The, The seat is empty is the English version for the Latin phrase that they... Interesting.
0: I grew up in the happy-we-play-guitar-feel-good post-Vatican II Catholic sure, Church, sure, where it was a bunch of hippies, and we sure. said mass in English. Yeah. so
1: All the guilt, none of the bilingualism. <laughs> Same. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you nailed it. <laughs> okay, so that's, that's Mel's dad. He was also a 9-11 truther. Oh, wow. He thought the planes had been flown by remote control, but did not say who he thought had been flying them. He was a crackpot, but he was brilliant he he was a jeopardy champion he uh di- then he won all these like quiz shows in Australia. He apparently could recite a book he had read one time verbatim like he genuinely brilliant guy, but
0: way to use your talents man crackpot so way to use your talents
1: perhaps we are getting somewhere with understanding Mel no. I don't know, imago. This it's is how this is how Peter Biskind, writing for Vanity Fair, explained Hutton Gibson in a 2011 profile of Mel. Catholic traditionalism, in which Hutton is a fervent believer, arose as a conservative response to the Vatican II modernization of Catholic dogma in the early 60s, along with abolishing the Latin Mass and fish on Fridays. The Second Vatican Council let the Jews off the hook for the crucifixion albeit several centuries too late. Oh my God. Anti-Semitism is therefore inherent in traditionalist theology, and Hutton does not disappoint. Vatican II, he told a New York Times reporter in 03, was, quote, a Masonic plot backed by the Jews. Oh God. One of Hutton's many books is entitled, Is the Pope Catholic? (laughs) (laughs) Biskin continues, while not, strictly speaking, a Holocaust denier, he is next door to it a holocaust minimizer i think in that same interview he basically argued that uh, hutton gibson basically argued that the logistical challenge of disposing of that many bodies is just impossible so the holocaust couldn't have been as bad as everyone says
0: crackpot brain
1: worms Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. okay yeah
0: yeah he's
1: getting a fuller picture he's the well actually guy (laughs) very cool guy Uh, For all his staunch theological conservatism, however, Hutton Gibson had no intention for any of his sons to waste their precious energies fighting the war in Vietnam. He was a railroad worker by trade, and in 1964, he fell off a steel platform at work, hurt his back, and sued. He won a $145,000 judgment when the case went to trial in 68, and he packed up his family and moved the whole Gaggle of them first to Ireland and then to Australia. Wow. A sort of global draft dodging effort, which worked. Mel was 12 at the time, and after graduating from Catholic schools in New South Wales, he attended the National Institute of Dramatic Art in Sydney. He graduated in 77, having already been cast as the lead in Mad Max, a low budget post apocalyptic Australian film that would, of course, become his breakout role. He stayed close to his stage roots by joining the state theater company of South Australia. I think it was in that period where he met his soon-to-be wife. Obviously, Mad Max this is sort of a turnabout on your, on your swashbuckler in, the, right. in your story. Oh, that movie was huge. Mad Max costs about I've seen 200,000 and 400,000 Australian. The 400,000 may be adjusted to now anyway. It cost well under a million dollars to make. And it grossed $100 million worldwide, and by some measures at the time, it was the most profitable film ever made.
0: Wow. All I remember is Tina Turner.
1: That would be Beyond Thunderdome. That's a few years later.
0: But okay, yes. Okay, that's the one I remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Obviously, Mad Max became a huge franchise in the 80s. There was Road Warrior, be Beyond Thunderdome. I love it that you are familiar with the canon oh, of I've Mad Max. Oh, I've seen them all <laughs> many times. This is my childhood jam. Obviously, Mad Max became a huge franchise in the 80s. As we were just talking, I have seen all of the movies. My brother and I were giddy about Mad Max films as children. All right, nerd herd. Let's talk about some personal news in the life of Mel Gibson in this period. He had met Robin Denise Moore in his Adelaide theater days, being on stage. Young love. She was a dental nurse who was willing to take a chance at a life with an up-and-coming actor, and they married in June 1980 in a Catholic ceremony in New South Wales. She's Episcopalian. Oh. And remained Episcopalian. She never... That was okay with the traditional Catholic family? Man in love? I don't know. Maybe he thought, I can change her. I don't know.
0: probably an interesting family dinner. Please continue. We'll become a plot point later.
1: A daughter followed soon after six sons would join the family over wow. the years. Uh, the youngest was born in 1999. I feel like, surprise! But man, you spend the first 20 years of your marriage raising kids and then you sign on to spend the next 20 years. Of That's a lot. It's a lot. In 1985, People magazine couldn't even figure out how to appropriately express its appreciation of this Aussie heartthrob. So it came up with the Sexiest Man Alive thing and named him the first one. That's where that started. He spent the late 80s and early 90s on the Lethal Weapon movies, which... Oh, God. you know, not about those. ...deep in my heart.
0: When did he star in Crocodile Dundee? <laughs>
1: just kidding. Uh, as well as there was Braveheart, Conspiracy Theory, like just a... It's Mel Gibson. He's, yeah, he yeah. was one of the most bankable actors in Hollywood. He had this string of movies that all grossed over $100 million. He was paid $25 million to star in The Patriot in 2000. Wow. And then, get this, without a shred of irony, he starred in a Vietnam War drama called We Were Soldiers, based on the book We Were Soldiers Once and Young by Lieutenant General Hal Moore. I realized that 12-year-old Mel was not calling the shots when Hutton Gibson evacuated his family from the United States to avoid the draft, but... That still feels a little like stolen valor to me. Also be a plot point later. Okay, so he also had success as a producer and director, made a big splash with Braveheart in 85. Some people felt there were some homophobic themes in it, but Mel Gibson don't care. Nearly a decade later, in 2004, the Mel Gibson produced, co-written, and directed The Passion of the Christ, grossed more than $600 million worldwide on a $30 million budget, with another $15 million in marketing costs thrown Holy in. Holy cats. Mel floated the expenses himself, so he pocketed the profits. This helps explain how Robin would ultimately walk away with $450 million what? in their divorce settlement.
0: $450 million?
1: Wow. Yep. that is
0: a lot.
1: Yeah, well, she got in on the ground floor.
0: Of, of smack
1: Over the years, Mel had developed a reputation in Hollywood as a real professional who was both hardworking and something of a prankster on set. Even some who worked closely with him didn't realize that he struggled with alcohol addiction. And I think his life story is essentially vacillating between long periods on the wagon and then long periods off the wagon. Hmm. Biskind, in The Vanity Fair piece, quotes Lethal Weapon director Richard Donner, who recalled an incident while filming Lethal Weapon 2 in '89. Mel came to me and he said, I'm going to leave early this afternoon. Is it okay? And I said, sure. And he said, I'm going to an AA meeting. I said, why are you going to an AA meeting? You're not an alcoholic. He said, yeah, I am. I sometimes used to drink a six pack of beer before I got to work. Wow. Yeah. Donner says I had no idea. So there's an account from the late 80s or early 90s where he was just getting hammered at a party. And on his way out, he grabbed the woman telling the story and just shoved his tongue into her mouth. Like you do. Oh, no. Another time in 1991, he was photographed canoodling with a couple waitresses at a bar he'd been at for some time in Modesto, California. Nope. As much as many colleagues liked him, he also had a reputation for violent, over-the-top statements in interviews. nope New York Times columnist Frank Rich had, like a great many people, found the passion of the Christ to be anti-Semitic. Mel responded in the press, I want to kill him. I want his (sighs) intestines on a stick. What? I want to kill his dog. So, Who that's super says normal. Says that Mel Gibson. Wow. Yep. Yeah. Winona Ryder has recalled a few times over the years. Now, uh, there was an incident in the mid '90s at a Hollywood party. Mel was there, very drunk. Winona was there with a gay friend. Mel reacted to the gay friend with some kind of I'm not gonna catch AIDS, am I? type of joke. Oh. Quasi-joke. I wrote quasi-joke. That's not a... Oh, it gets worse. No. And when it came up that Winona is herself Jewish, Mel apparently used the term and I deeply apologize for even giving voice to this absolute appalling bullshit. He used the term oven dodgers. Oh my God. Yeah. Further the conversation. I didn't think Murder your dog could get worse. Oh, but it just—it it, just—it just, just, it gets worse. Yeah, I, mm, I am so sorry. I mean, there this there is vicious anti-Semitism in this story. Um, if it helps, he's also extremely dismissive of women and feminism. <laughs> Can we finish talking about him now and get never ever
0: speak of him again?
1: Okay, so. You know, this seems like a guy who has a lot of need to assert dominance. So I feel like a lot of the stories we cover include a big helping of fragile masculinity. Mel Gibson has plenty of that on display. On the other hand, being a movie star with a very long marriage and a ton of kids really did make him stand out in Hollywood. And in spite of everything I just told you about him a big part of his brand was that he was a religious conservative, family first. I'm a married you know. man. I have kids. I'm Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. When he talks about family, it it really looks like it's just another way for him to try to assert dominance over others, to elevate his status. So he once told an in interview, There's nothing more important than your family. If you ruin that part of your life, what's left? Work, money, screwing around. I see a lot of people living like that who tell themselves they're having a good time. But if you look under the surface, you see lots of corpses masquerading as human beings. What a self-fulfilling prophecy. (laughs) All right, let's jump to 2006 and the DUI arrest heard around the world, shall we? Mel had just returned to California from Veracruz, Mexico, where an anticipated couple of months of filming his movie Apocalypto had faced numerous, like the place got hit with two hurricanes no, no. during production. Yeah, it stretched to like eight or nine months. I mean, it just, it sounds like it it was, it was a draining experience. His marriage was already in shambles. He was drinking again. His behavior was becoming more erratic. And one friend suggested that his daughter's upcoming nuptials was just adding to the stress. Uh, Robin, according to this account, had warned Mel to keep a low profile and not embarrass the family ahead of their daughter's big day, which is a perfectly reasonable hunt request. <laughs> makes a lot of sense. Well, <laughs> oh my. It was July, and Mel was flying along the Pacific Coast Highway in Malibu at eighty miles an hour in a forty five mile an hour zone, with an open bottle of tequila keeping him company. Oh Before he started ranting about the Jews, he reportedly told the cop who pulled him over. My life is over. I'm fucked. Robin's going to leave me. Then he went off, apropos of nothing, about how the Jews are responsible for all wars in the world, and demanded to know whether his arresting officer was a Jew. Later, Mel called a female officer "sugar tits" in case you were worried. No,
0: he did not.
1: That he had not. His mugshot was everywhere the next day, and as Hollywood officialdom distanced itself from him. It turned out he had been right about one thing. Robin did leave him. Mel would relate to Diane Sawyer in an October interview that year that after he was released from jail, he went home and had to explain what had happened to his kids, and the experience was difficult enough that he followed it up with a few drinks just to steady himself. Oh, He was in a bad way. I, I don't want to discount no, that. No, I mean, I certainly feel for
0: Yeah how hard it is getting clean in the struggle of addiction. Sure. That's a real,
1: real thing. Absolutely. The other stuff You don't call a cop sugar tits. Or just anyway. The public was quite disgusted. Barbara Walters said on the view, I don't think I want to see any more Mel Gibson movies. And Ari Emanuel, whose talent he's a super agent in hollywood his talent agency represented mel he called on the industry the hollywood industry to boycott mel gibson whoa (laughs) yeah ironically this really the abc network had been producing a miniseries on the holocaust with him with mel gibson mm -hmm, like mel gibson's production company was they were gonna that project obviously was canceled although i am genuinely curious what mel planned to do With the story of Flory A. Van Beek, a Dutch Jew who was hidden by her Gentile neighbors, and probably it's best that we don't know. Mel apologized publicly and a lot, telling the world I acted like a person completely out of control, and said things I do not believe to be true and which are despicable. Apocalypto, the film he'd been working on, it did well at the box office when it came out at the end of the year, but that was the last time Mel Gibson was attached to anything for like five years. He and Robin remained married, though they were officially separated. But in 2007, he began a relationship with singer Oksana Grigorieva, I think is how that's pronounced. She's a Russian singer. And this would eventually put the final stake in the heart of the marriage. Oh, you think? Because in 2009, Oksana became pregnant. So Robin filed for divorce, citing...
0: Irreconcilable Differences?
1: My husband's a (laughs) dirtbag. Better. I like that better. Yes, it was spelled Irreconcilable Differences. but... (laughs) But what it meant was... Another fun thing about Mel Gibson. Oh, no. In 2003, he planted a traditionalist Catholic church unaffiliated with the Roman Catholic Archdiocese just north of Los Angeles. It's like an independent Roman Catholic church. Uh, a priest each day conducts a pre-Vatican II service, Latin Mass, back oh, back to the parishioners. Anyway, the Church oh, of the Holy Family... Same amount of guilt, still none of the
0: comprehension.
1: Yeah, no happy guitar playing. Wow. Uh, yeah, the Church of the Holy Family, uh, women are required to wear head coverings inside. Apparently, many of the parishioners hold the opinion that no pope since Vatican II has been legitimate. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Mel himself has never specifically signed on to that view in public. I think I did address this earlier, but but he told the New Yorker in 2003, actually, I'm going to let him tell you, quote, there is no salvation for those outside the church. I believe it. Put it this way. My wife is a saint. She's a much better person than I am. Honestly... She's like Episcopalian, Church of England. She prays, she believes in God, she knows Jesus, she believes in that stuff. And it's just not fair that she doesn't make it. She's better than I am. But this is a pronouncement from the chair. I go with it.
0: Oh, a pronouncement from the chair? Mm-hmm.
1: Wow. So I'm not sure if you've heard Catholic teaching on divorce, but it's kind of a big no no. So after Robin filed, Mel Gibson went off in church one day. Like and it made news. So according to Radar Online, quote, in front of two priests and a visiting bishop, Gibson made a huge scene when he paced back and forth furiously telling the congregation that he would not stand by and be judged and scrutinized. So this is a, a quote from a oh. from a congregant at this church he he funded. Okay. Mel got up on his stage, the altar, and went off. He tried to intimidate the parishioners by staring at everybody with his angry eyes. Mel even threatened to shut down the church if people kept gossiping about him. The bottom line is that if Mel hadn't cheated on his wife and gotten his Russian girlfriend pregnant, there wouldn't be much to gossip about. He created this mess, (laughs) and now he's trying to control it. Can you imagine? No, Sitting in church and suddenly... There's wow. Mel Gibson screaming at you. A little fragility. Might have mentioned, the divorce did not become final until the end of 2011. Uh, there had been no prenuptial agreement. They married young. He oh, was not a star. Robin was entitled to half of everything he had made in his career, and I feel like 450 million for 30ish years of taking care of Mel Gibson does not seem outrageous. Nope. But that was not the last caretaking that Robin would have to do... Oh no, she's not done? ...with her ex. She can't just take the money and run? So many kids. (laughs) Well, uh, true. In 2010, Oksana, the girlfriend, accused Mel of hitting her and released fairly horrific secretly recorded tapes that she had made. Oh no. For instance, in one segment, she is warning him basically that he's going to get his for hitting her, to which he replies you fucking deserved it. And later says, I'm threatening. I'll put you in a fucking rose garden, you, and then a C word that many people object to. So I'm just going to leave it there. You understand that? Cause I'm capable of it. He tells her there's another bit where he basically wishcasts." Uh, I apologize for this again. Um, about her being gang raped by black men. No. And I think you probably know the word he used for black men. And then he threatens to burn. This is all on tape? Oh, yeah. Oh, how? Then he threatens to burn their house down with her in it after she has performed oral sex on him. This so. man is
0: a monster. Mm-hmm. Please
1: remind me to add
0: a trigger warning in the intro for this story.
1: It's a great call good Um, god so again super normal not at all upsetting racist stuff ah robin again long suffering robin released a statement saying that he had been a loving father to their kids and there was no violence in their home during their marriage got to lie wow he ended up pleading no contest to a misdemeanor battery charge stemming from all of that he received probation counseling and $600 fine. And if they would just do that a million times to him, he'd lose all of his Passion of the Christ money. (laughs) Also on the tapes, somewhat bafflingly, he tells Oksana, quote, I left my wife because we had no spiritual common ground. Although first I'm, you know, that's the quote. I'm pretty sure Robin left him. And second, maybe that speaks better of Robin and her spiritual situation than it does of you. He's in the big chair, Stacy." Uh, I don't know about you, but I was already way over Mel Gibson public figure by the time all that went down. But luckily for Mel, plenty of people were in his corner. He'd given Robert Downey Jr. his first kind of break after his own arrests and substance abuse issues had nearly destroyed his career. So, you know, Iron Man went to the mat to plead for Hollywood to embrace his friend again, saying in 2011 unless you are without sin, and if you are, you are in the wrong fucking industry, you should forgive him and let him work. Longtime friend Jodie Foster cast him in 2011's The Beaver, his first starring role in five years. She was also a prominent public advocate to rehabilitate his career. Whoopi Goldberg is on the record as a supporter of Mel Gibson. And in 2016, it seems that institutional Hollywood felt like he had served his time. He'd made amends. He had, like, privately reached out to a lot of people who had jettisoned him. I'm sure it was, you know, humiliating and painful and all that. So Hacksaw Ridge, directed by Mel Gibson, was nominated for six Oscars, and Mel himself received a 10-minute standing ovation at the Venice Film Festival in Italy with it that year. I will say this, apparently one positive impact of these horrible years and horrible incidents is that Mel Gibson has managed to get and stay sober, or so we're told. Good on him. He is now the father of nine. Wow. Having had another baby with his current girlfriend in 2017. For the ultra-conservative traditional Catholic guy who thinks ruining your family makes you a corpse masquerading as a human being, he's still pretty lively. A hypocrite with incredibly violent urges for sure, but still alive. I guess that's something. And in case you're wondering whether all that fragile masculinity had plugged itself into the cult of fragile masculinity that is so prominent today, he was recorded saluting Donald Trump military style uh. at a UFC match in July. Sure. Just one bigoted cheater with impulse control problems and a bunch of kids with a bunch of different women to another, I guess. Mel Gibson, we hereby award you 900 million trash cans for what your fortune was before your ex-wife had enough of you. Seems light. And I'm going to let the actor Seth Rogen, the good Rogen, as it were, it's, (laughs) they're not related. It's spelled differently. I'm going to let Seth Rogen have the last word in this story. This is from a 2020 variety piece by Elizabeth Wagmeister called, How Does Mel Gibson Still Have a Career? Gibson also has his Hollywood detractors, she writes, like Seth Rogen, who responded to writer's claims by tweeting, quote, "I'm only surprised by Mel Gibson's oven dodger comment because it acknowledges the Holocaust actually happened." That's Mel Gibson. <laughs> wow. Yeah, we'll
0: put a trigger warning in the intro. I'm gonna say that after 11 seasons, that is a hell of a way to end season 11. <laughs> After 11 seasons of this amazing podcast. May we never speak of him again. May we never speak of him again. Yes. But also, I'm rarely shocked anymore. Uh, it w- Remember back in season one, and sure. we would find things that would be quite shocking? Sure. And then, you know, we do the thing, and things become less shocking over time. But I'm literally shook right now. Mabel he- taught me that.
1: This was. I'm shook. <laughs> This this was upsetting to write. It was difficult to figure out how to... Wow. ...characterize some... And I, I will say, I guess I should note that he claims that those tapes were edited, but... Oh, I uh, bet. You know. Anyway. Stacy, well done. This is the on last a... we will ever say about that person.
0: Truly, truly terrible story. Whew. Y'all, thanks for tuning in. Wow. Yep. It... Words are hard. I should have prepped a script out. sorry I did not I d I didn't I didn't know that it was gonna be quite like that.
1: All right, so we are off next week. Let's get some business done. <laughs> We're taking a week off, but I'll be with the words. As always, you can find us at patreon.com slash trashy divorces. You can find free stuff we've liberated from the paywall there at bit.ly slash trash candy. We are going to continue unpacking boxes. From the move that we started like 17 seasons ago or something.
0: Sometime back in May. Yeah. We will be coming back. Season 12 kicks off for you Wednesday with the trashy breakups on October the 6th. Mm -hmm. We'll be back with our first season 12 trashy divorce on October the 10th. And until then, friends. Oh my gosh. Thank you for listening and your love and telling your best friend about us. And your great five-star reviews and emailing us and letting us be part of your lives for almost three years. It's really incredible. Coming up on three years, yeah. We cannot wait to come back for season 12. Can't wait to see you again in just a short, quick
1: week. Keep your hands clean, friends.
0: Keep your hearts trashy, not as trashy as Mel Gibson. Oh, God. He wins. He's done. (laughs) He's on the trashiest
1: card. Retired.
0: 100%. Big love, y'all. Big cheers. Thanks again. See you in a couple weeks. See you in season 12. Bye. Woo. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacy and Alicia, with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O.
1: Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram.